Good day, good day, you legends. Are you ready for some seafaring adventures? Well then, you're in for a treat, my salty land lovers. Today, I've decided that I'll be reading to you lovelies accounts of pirates from the book The Pirates Who's Who by Philip Gosey. And it's an absolute riot, you salty dogs. What I'll be doing is going through a pirate by name, understanding where they come from, their crimes, their ends. And their ends are not always negative, as well as the shenanigans that they get up to. There is such a wealth of untapped knowledge in this space, and the new understanding of how people got away with crazy stuff like this back then. It'll blow your freaking mind. And for those looking for the soul of Lilith, I'll be returning to that next week, rest assured. I just wanted to shake it up a bit. This narration was so much fun, and no, it won't be done in my fake pirate voice. Great googly moogly. <laughs> but I really hope you enjoy what we uncover about pirates today. Navast me hearties. And don't forget to bring your sea legs. <laughs> Angora, Sultan of Timor. Refusing to allow the East India Company to station garrisons on Timor, he was driven out of the whole of his island except the chief town, also called Angora. Deciding to take revenge, he turned pirate and went to sea in command of a small fleet of five well-armed pros and several galleys. His first prize was a packet brig carrying dispatches from Calcutta to the English general before Angora. Captain Hastings, the commander, a near relation of Warren Hastings and a gallant officer, had thrown the dispatches overboard, for which he was hanged, while the crew were sent to prison at Angora and afterwards poisoned. His next prize was an East Indian ship, the Edward, Captain Harford, the crew of which were also poisoned. Cruising off Bombay, he defeated a vessel sent out by the government to attack him. After taking other English vessels, Angora met with a richly laden ship from Burma, a country whose sovereign he was on friendly terms with. But the Sultan Pirate took this ship and drowned every soul on board except one woman, who, owing to her great beauty, he kept for himself. His next victim was a well-armed melee pram, which he captured after a severe fight. The crew he shackled and threw overboard while he burnt the vessel. Paying another visit to Bombay, he caught the garrison unprepared, blew up the fort, and sailed off with some sheep, cows, and pigs. A few days later, the pirate seized an English packet, St. George, and after he had tortured to death the captain, the terrified crew joined his service. Returning to Timor with his plunder, he was surprised by the arrival off the port of HMS, victorious, 74 guns, which had been sent to take him. Slipping out of the harbour unobserved in the night, in his fastest sailing pram, he escaped to Trincomalee in Ceylon, where the East India Company decided to allow him to remain undisturbed. A happy ending for Angora, 
Sultan of Timor. Angria, brother of a famous pirate Angora, Sultan of Timor. When the Sultan retired from practice to the island of Ceylon, he gave his brother his prayer, a fast vessel armed with 38 guns. Angria's brother, Angora, had been dethroned from the island of Timor by the English government, and this had prevented the former from all hope of succeeding as Sultan. Owing to this, Angria, a very vindictive man, nursed against the English government a very real grievance, declaring himself Sultan of another smaller island, Little Timor, he sailed out to look for spoil. His first victim was the Elphinstone, which he took some 80 miles off Bombay, putting the crew of 47 men into an open boat without water and with scarcely room to move, he left them. It was in the hottest month of the year and only 28 of them reached Bombay alive. Angria, being broad-minded on the subject of his new profession, did not limit himself to taking only English vessels. For meeting with two giant Chinese junks laden with spices and riches, he plundered them both, and tying the crew back to back, threw them into the sea to drown. One of the Chinamen, while watching his companions being drowned, managed to get a hand free from his ropes and, taking his dagger, stabbed Angria, but missing his heart, only wounded him in the shoulder. To punish him, the pirate had the skin cut off his back and then had him beaten with canes. Then, lashing him firmly down to the raft, he was thrown overboard. After drifting about for three days and nights, he was picked up, still alive by a fishing boat and carried to Bombay, where, fully recovered, he lived the rest of his days. Angria continued his activities for three years, during which space he was said to have murdered in cold blood over 500 Englishmen. He was eventually chased by Commander Jones in the HMS Asia, 64 guns into Timor, and after a close siege of the town for 12 months, Angria was shot by one of the mob while haranguing them from a balcony. After Commander Jones's death, his widow built a tower at Shooter's Hill by Woolwich Common to perpetuate the memory of her husband who had rid the Indian Ocean of the tyrant Angria. The following lines are from the pen of Robert Bloomfield and allude to this very moment. Yon far-famed monumental tower records the achievement of the brave and Angria's subjugated power, who plundered on the eastern way. Anstis, Captain Thomas. The first mention of the name of this notorious pirate occurs in the year 1718, when we hear of him shipping himself at Provident in a sloop called the Buck, in company with five other rascals who were conspiring together to seize the vessel and with her go, a pirating that spelt a-P-Y-R-A-T-I-N-G Of these five, one was Howell Davis, who was afterwards killed in an affair at the Island of Princes. Another, Denman Topping, who was killed in the taking of a rich Portuguese ship on the coast of Brazil. A third, Walter Kennedy, was eventually hanged at execution dock, while the two others, who escaped the usual end of pirates, that is, 
by hanging, shooting, or drowning in salt water or rum, disappeared into respectable obscurity and employment of some sort in the city of London. This party of six conspirators was the nucleus of a very powerful combination of pirates, which eventually came under the command of the famous Captain Roberts. Anastasis' pirates' career began as did most others. They cruised about amongst the West India Islands, seizing and plundering all merchant ships they chanced upon, and, if we are to believe some of the stories that were circulated at the time of their treatment of their prisoners, they appear to have been an even rougher lot of scoundrels than were usual. Before long, they seized a very stout ship, the Morning Star, bound from Guinea to Carolina, and fitted her up with 32 cannons taken from another prize, manned her with a crew of 100 men, and put Captain John Fenn in command. Anstis and the elder officer could have had command of this newer and larger ship, but he was so in love with his own vessel, the Good Fortune, which was an excellent sailor, that he preferred to remain in her. The party now had two stout ships, but as so often happened, trouble began to ferment amongst the crew. A large number of these had been more or less forced to go a-pirating and were anxious to avoid the consequences, so they decided to send a round robin, that is, a petition, signed by all with their names in a circle, so that no rogue could be held to be more prominent than any other to ask for the king's pardon. This round robin was addressed to His Most Sacred Majesty George, by the grace of God and Great Britain, France and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc. This petition was sent to England by a merchant vessel, then sailing from Jamaica, while the crews hid their ships amongst the mangrove swamps of a small uninhabited island off the coast of Cuba. Here they waited for nine months for an answer to their petition to the king, living on turtle, fish, rice, and of course, rum ad lib, as long as it lasted. To pass the time, various diversions were instigated, particularly dancing, a pastime in great favor amongst pirates. We have a most amusing account left us of a mock court of justice held by them to try one another of piracy, and he who was on one day tried as the prisoner would next day take his turn at being the judge. This shows a grim sense of humor, as most of them who took part in these mock trials were certain to end their careers before a real trial, unless they came to a sudden and violent end beforehand. Here is an account of one such mock trial, as given to Captain Johnson, the historian of the pirates, by an eyewitness. The court and criminals being both appointed, as also counsel to plead, the judge got up in a tree, and had a dirty turpaulin hung over his shoulder. This was done by way of robe and a thrum cap on his head, and a large pair of spectacles upon his nose. Thus equipped, he settled himself in his place, an abundance of officers attending him below with crows, handspikes, etc. Instead of wands, tipstaves, and such like, the criminals were brought about, making a thousand sour faces, and one who acted as attorney general opened the charge against them. Their speeches were very laconic, and their whole proceedings concise. We shall give it by way of dialogue. At all, Jen, and please your lordship and your gentlemen of the jury, here is a fellow before you that is a sad dog, a sad, sad dog, and I humbly hope your lordship 
will order him to hang it out of the way immediately. He has committed piracy upon the high seas. And we shall prove and please your lordship that this fellow, this sad dog before you, has escaped a thousand storms. Nay, has got safe ashore when the ship has been cast away, which was a certain sign he was not born to be drowned. Yet not having the fear of hanging before his eyes, he went on robbing and ravishing man, women and child, plundering ships, cargoes fore and aft, burning and sinking ship, bark and boat, as if the devil had been in him. But this is not all, my lord. He has committed worse villainies than all these, for we shall prove that he's been guilty of drinking small beer. And your lordship knows there's never a sober fellow but what was a rogue. My lord, I should have spoke much finer than I do now, but, but that as your lordship knows, our rum is all out. And how should a man speak good law that has not drunk a dram? However, I hope your lordship will order the fellow to be hanged. Judge, hark me, sirrah. You lousy, pitiful, ill-looking dog. What have you to say? Why, you should not be tucked up immediately and set a sun dry like a scarecrow. Are you guilty or not guilty? Presiding, not guilty, yeah. And please, your worship. The judge, not guilty. Not guilty, so say it again, sirrah, and I'll have you hanged without any trial. Presiding, and please your worship, honour my lord, I am an honest and poor fellow, as ever went between stem and stern of a ship, and can hand, reef, steer, and clap two ends of a rope together, as well as ear, and he that ever crossed salt water, but I was taken by one George Bradley, the name of him that sat as a judge, a notorious pirate, a sad rogue, as ever was unhanged, and he forced me, and please your honour. The judge, answer me, sirrah, how will you be tried? Presiding, Budge, and my country. Judge, the devil you will. Why then, gentlemen of the jury, I think we'd have nothing to do but to proceed to judgment. Attorney General, right, my lord. For if the fellow should be suffered to speak, he may clear himself, and that's an affront to the courts. Presiding, pray, my lord, I hope your lordship will consider... Consider? How dare you talk of considering? Sarah, Sarah, I've never considered in all my life. I'll make it treason to consider. Presiding, but I hope your lordship will hear some reason. The judge. Do you hear how the scoundrel prates? Why, what have we to do with reason? And have you no rascal? We don't sit here to hear reason. We according to law. Is our dinner ready? Y yes my lord. Judge, then hark ye, you rascal at the bar, hear me. Sirrah, hear me. You must suffer for three reasons. First, because it's not fit I should sit here as a judge and no body be hanged. Secondly, you must be hanged because you have a damned hanging look. And thirdly, you must be hanged because I am hungry. For no, sirrah, that tis a custom. That whenever the judge's dinner is ready before the trial is over, the prisoner is to be hanged, of course. There's law for you, you dog. So take him away, jailer. And so ends the proceeding judge in personification. No time was lost in returning to their old ways. For the very next day, both pirate ships 
left their hiding place and sailed out on the grand account. But now their luck deserted them, for the morning star was run aground on a reef by gross neglect on the part of the officers and wrecked. Most of the crew escaped onto an island where Captain Anstis found them the next day, and no sooner had he taken aboard Captain Fenn Phillips, the carpenter, and a few others, than all of a sudden down upon them came two men of war, the Hector and the Adventure, so that Anstis had barely time to cut his cables and get away to sea, hotly pursued by the Adventure. The latter, in a stiff breeze, was slowly gaining on the brigantine, when all of a sudden the wind dropped, the pirates got out the sweeps and thus managed, for the time being, to escape. In the meantime, the Hector took prisoner the forty pirates remaining on the island. Anstis soon got to work again and captured several prizes. He then sailed to the island of Tobago to clean and refit his ship, just when all the guns and stores had been landed and the ship healed. As ill luck would have it, the Winchester man of war put into bay and the pirates had barely time to set their ship on fire and to escape into the woods. Anstis had by now lost all authority over his discontented crew, and one night was shot while asleep in his hammock. And thus ends Anstis's adventure. Captain John Auger, a pirate of New Providence, Bahama Islands, he accepted the royal pardon in 1718 and impressed the governor Woods Rogers so favorably that he was placed in command of a sloop to go and trade amongst the islands. A few days out of Augur met with two sloops, the sight of which dispelled all memory of their late good intentions and turning pirate once more, they seized the two sloops and took out of them money and goods to the value of 500 pounds. The pirates now sailed for Hispaniola, but with bad luck or owing to retribution, a sudden hurricane arose which drove them back to the one spot in the West Indies they must have been most anxious to avoid, that is, the Bahama Islands. Here the sloop became a total wreck, but the crew got ashore and for a while lay hidden in a wood. Rogers, hearing where they were, sent an armed sloop to the island, and the captain by fair promises induced the eleven marooned pirates to come abroad. Taking these back to Providence, Rogers had them all tried before a court of lately converted pirates, and they were condemned to be hanged. While standing on the gallows platform, the wretched culprits reproached the crowd of spectators, so lately their fellow brethren in piracy, for allowing their old comrades to be hanged, and urging them to come to the rescue. But virtue was still strong in these recent converts, and all of the comfort the criminals got was to be told. It was their business to turn their minds to another world, and sincerely to repent of what wickedness they had done in this. Yes, answered the now irritated and in no wise abashed Orca, I do heartily repent, I repent, I have not done more mischief, and that we did not cut the throats of them that took us, and I am extremely sorry that you ain't all hanged as well as we. And so end Captain John Orca's adventures. Captain John Avery, alias Henry Avery, alias Captain Bridgman, nicknamed Long Ben, or also nicknamed the Arch Pirate.
In the year 1695, when at the height of his career, Avery caught the public's fancy, as no other pirate ever did, with the possible exception of Captain Kidd, so much so that his achievements or supposed achievements form the plot of several popular novels and plays. Charles Johnson wrote a play called The Successful Pirate, and again spelt with P-Y-R-A-T-E, which works ran into several editions and was acted as the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane. The scene in this play was laid in the island of Madagascar, and the hero was modelled on Captain Avery. This pirate was a Devonshire man, being born near Plymouth about the year 1665, and was bred to the sea. He sailed on several voyages as mate abroad a merchantman. He was later appointed first officer in an armed privateer, the Duke. Commander Captain Gibson, which sailed from Bristol for Spain, being hired by the Spaniards for service in the West Indies against the French pirates. Avery soon plotted a mutiny, which was carried out while the Duke lay at anchor in Cadiz Harbour. The ship was seized, and the captain put ashore. Avery was elected captain, and he renamed the ship the Charles II. For more than a year, Avery sailed in this vessel, praying without distinction upon persons of all nations and religions. After leaving Spain, he first sailed to the Isle of May, holding the Portuguese governor for ransom till provisions were sent on abroad. He took near here three English ships, then sailed to the coast of Guinea to procure slaves. To catch these, Avery would anchor off a village and hoist English colors. The trusting slaves would then paddle off to the ship in canoes, bringing gold to traffic with them. At a given signal, these slaves would be seized, clamped in irons, and thrown into the hold. Avery next sailed to the island of Princes, where he attacked two Danish ships and took them both. The next place the pirates touched at was Madagascar, from where they sailed to the Red Sea to await the fleet. Expected from Mocha. To pass the time and to earn an honest penny, the pirates called in at a town called Meat to sell to the natives some of their stolen merchandise. But the cautious inhabitants refused to do any business with these suspicious-looking merchants. So in order to punish them, the pirates burnt down their town. They next visited Aden, where they met two other English pirate ships and were soon joined by three others from America, all on the same enterprise. Expecting the Mocha fleet to come along, they waited here, but the fleet slipped past the pirates in the night. Avery was after them the next morning and catching up to them, singled out the largest ship, fought her for two hours and took her. She proved to be the Gunsway, belonging to the great mogul himself, and a very valuable prize as out of her they took a hundred thousand pieces of eight and a like number of chequins as well as several of the highest persons of the court who were passengers on a pilgrimage to Mecca. It was rumoured that a daughter of the great mogul was also on board. Accounts of this exploit eventually reached England and created great excitement, so that it soon became the talk of the town that Captain Avery had taken the beautiful young princess to Madagascar, where he had married her and was living in royal estate. The proud father of several small princes and princesses. The mogul was naturally infuriated at this outrage on his ship and threatened in retaliation to lay waste all the East India Company settlements. Having got a vast booty, 
Avery and his friends sailed towards Madagascar, and on the way there, Avery, as admiral of the little fleet, signaled to the captain of the other sloops to come aboard his vessel. When they arrived, Avery put forth before them the following ingenious scheme. He proposed that the treasures in the two sloops should, for safety, be put into his keeping till they all three arrived in Madagascar. This, being agreed to, was done. But during the night, after Avery had explained matters to his own men, he altered his course and left the sloops and never saw them again. He now sailed away with all the plunder to the West Indies, arriving safely at New Providence Island in the Bahamas, where he offered to the governor a bribe of 20 pieces of eight and two pieces of gold to get him a pardon. Avery arrived in 1696 at Boston, where he appeared to have successfully bribed the Quaker governor to let him and some of his crew land with their spoils unmolested. But the pirate did not feel quite safe, and rightfully so, and also thought it would be well nigh impossible to sell his diamonds in the colony without being closely questioned as to how he came by them. So, leaving America, he sailed to the north of Ireland, where he sold the sloop. Here, the crew finally dispersed, and Avery stopped some time in Dublin, but was still unable to dispose of the stolen diamonds. Thinking England would be a better place for his transaction, he went there, and settled at Bideford in Devon, where he lived very quietly under a false name, and through a friend communicated with certain merchants in Bristol. These came to him, accepted his diamonds and some gold cups, giving him a few pounds for his immediate wants, and took the valuables to Bristol to sell, promising to send him the money procured for them. Time dragged on, but nothing came from Bristol merchants, and at last it began to dawn on Avery that there were pirates on land as well as at sea. His frequent letters to the merchants brought at the most but a few occasional shillings, which were immediately swallowed up by the payment of his debts for the bare necessities of life at Bideford. At length, when matters were becoming desperate, Avery was taken ill and died, not being worth as much as would buy him a coffin. Thus ended Avery, the Grand Pirate, whose name was well known all over Europe, and who was supposed to be reigning as a king in Madagascar, when all the while he was hiding and starving in a cottage at Bideford. Captain Charles Pirate Bellamy Socialist and orator, a famous West Indian filibuster. He began life as a wrecker in the West Indies, but this business being uncertain in its profits, and Bellamy being an ambitious young man, had decided with his partner, Paul Williams, to aim at higher things, and to enter the profession of piracy. Bellamy had now chosen a calling that lent itself to his undoubted talents, and his future career Whilst it lasted, it was a brilliant one. It was a brilliant one. Procuring a ship, he sailed up and down the coast of Carolina and New England, taking and plundering numerous vessels, and when this neighborhood became too hot for him, he would cruise for a while in the cooler climates of Newfoundland. Bellamy had considered his gifts for public speaking, and seldom missed an opportunity of addressing the assembled officers and crews of the ship he took, before liberating or otherwise disposing of them. His views were distinctly socialistic. On one occasion in an address to a Captain Beer, 
who had pleaded to have his sloop returned to him, Captain Bellamy, after clearing his throat, began as follows. I am sorry that you can't have your sloop again, for I scorn to do anyone any mischief when it is not to my advantage. Though you are a sneaking puppy, and so are all those who will submit to be governed by laws rich men have made for their own security, for the cowardly whelps have not the courage otherwise to defend what they get by their knavery. But damn ye altogether for a pack of crafty rascals, and you who serve them for a parcel of hen-hearted numbskulls. They vilify us, the scoundrels do, when there is the only difference that they rob the poor under cover of the law, forsooth, and we plunder the rich under the protection of our own courage. Had you not better make one of us than sneak after these villains for employment? Bellamy's fall, though, at last at the hands of a whaler captain. At the time, he was in command of the Widor and a small fleet of other pirate craft, which was lying at anchor in the Bay of Placentia in Newfoundland. Sailing for Placentia for Nantucket Shoals, he seized a whaling vessel, the Marianne. As the skipper on the whaler knew the coast well, Bellamy made him pilot of his small fleet. The cunning skipper one night ran his ship onto a sandbank near Eastman, Massachusetts, and the rest of the fleet followed his stern light onto the rocks. Almost all the crews perished, only seven of the pirates being saved. These were seized and brought to trial, condemned and hanged at Boston in 1726. The days spent between the sentence of the hanging were not wasted, for we read in the contemporary account that by the indefatigable pains of a pious and learned divine who constantly attended them, they were at length, by the special grace of God, made sensible of and truly penitent for the innumerous crimes they had been guilty of. And the last pirate for now that we'll cover is Major Steed Bonnet alias Captain Thomas alias Edwards. The history of this pirate is both interesting and unique. He was not brought up to the seafaring life. In fact, before he took to piracy, he had already retired from the army with the rank of major. He owned substantial landed property in Barbados, lived in a fine house, was married, and much respected by the quality and gentry of that island. His turning pirate naturally greatly scandalized his neighbors, and they found it difficult at first to imagine whatever had caused this sudden and extraordinary resolution, particularly in a man of his position in society. But when the cause at last came to be known, he was more pitied than blamed, for it was understood that the mage's mind had become unbalanced, owing to the unbridled nagging of Mrs. Bonnet. Referring to this, the historian Captain Johnson writes as follows, He was afterwards rather pitied than condemned, by those that were acquainted with him, believing that this humour of going a pirating proceeded from a disorder in his mind, which had been too visible in him. Some time before this wicked undertaking, and which is said to have been occasioned by some discomforts he found in a married state, be that as it will, the major was but ill qualified for the business and not understanding maritime affairs. Whatever the cause of the major's disorder of mind, the fact remains that at his own expense, he fitted out a sloop armed with ten guns and a crew of seventy men. The fact that he honestly paid in cash for this ship is highly suspicious 
of a deranged mind, since no other pirate to the writer's knowledge ever showed such a nicety of feeling, but always stole the ship in which to embark on the account. The major, to satisfy the curious, gave out that he intended to trade between the islands, but one night, without a word of farewell to Miss Bonnet, he sailed out of harbour in the revenge, as he called his ship, and began to cruise off the coast of Virginia. For a rank amateur, Bonnet met with wonderful success, as is shown by a list of the prizes he took and plundered in this first period of his piracy. The ships he wrecked and ravaged are as follows. The Anne of Glasgow, Captain Montgomery, the Turbet of Barbados, which, after plundering, he burnt, as he did all prizes from Barbados, the Endeavour, previously owned by Captain Scott, the Young of Leith, the plunder of these ships he sold at Gardenia Island near New York. Cruising next off the coast of Carolina, Bonnet took a brace of prizes, but began to have trouble with his unruly crew, who, seeing their captain knew nothing whatever of sea affairs, took advantage of the fact and commenced to get out of hand. Unlikely for Bonnet, he at this time met with the famous Captain Teach, or Blackbeard, and the latter, quickly appreciating how matters stood, ordered the Major to come on board his own ship, while he put his Lieutenant Richards to command Bonnet's vessel. The poor Major was most oppressed by this undignified change in his affairs, until Blackbeard lost his ship in Topsail Inlet, and finding himself at a disadvantage, promptly surrendered to the King's proclamation and allowed Bonnet to resume command of his own sloop. But Major Bonnet had been suffering from qualms of conscience latterly, so he sailed to Bathtown in North Carolina, where he too surrendered to the governor and received his certification of pardon. Almost at once, news came of war being declared between England and France with Spain, so Bonnet hurried back to Topsail and was granted permission to take back his sloop and sail her to St. Thomas's Island to receive a commission as a privateer for the French governor of that island. But in the meanwhile, Teach had robbed everything of any value out of Bonnet's ship and had marooned 17 of the crew on a sandy island. But these were rescued by the Major before they died of starvation. Just as the ship was ready to sail, a bum boat came alongside to sell apples and cider to the sloop's crew. And from these, they got an interesting piece of news. They learned that Teach, with a crew of 18 men, was at that moment lying at anchor in Orocock Inlet. The Major, longing to revenge the insult he had suffered from Blackbeard and his crew, remembered how he had left them to die on a desert island. When went off in search of Teach, but failed to find him. Stead Bonnet, having received his pardon on his own name, now called himself Captain Thomas and again took piracy and evidently had benefited by his apprenticeship with Blackbeard, for he was now most successful, taking many prizes off the coast of Virginia and later in Delaware Bay. Bonnet now sailed in a larger ship, the Royal James, so named from feelings of loyalty to the crown, but she proved to be very leaky, and the pirates had to take her to the mouth of Cape Fear River for repairs. News of this being carried out to the Council of South Carolina Arrangements were made to attempt to capture the pirate, and a Colonel William Rett, at his own expense, fitted out two armed sloops, the Henry, eight guns and seventy men, and the Sea Nymph, eight guns and sixty men, both sailing under the direct command of the gallant Colonel. On September 25th, 1718, the sloops arrived at Cape Fear River, and there, sure enough, 
was the Royal James, with three sloops lying at anchor behind the bar. The pirates tried to escape by sailing out, but was followed by the colonel's two vessels until all three ran aground within gunshot of each other. A brisk fight took place for five hours, when the major struck his colours and surrendered. There was great public rejoicing in Charleston when, on October 3rd, Colonel Rhett sailed victoriously into the harbour with his prisoners. But next day, Bonnet managed to escape out of prison and sailed to Swilvance Island. The indefatigable Colonel Rhett again set out after the Major and caught him and brought him back to Charleston. The trial of Steed Bonnet and his crew began on October 28, 1718 at Charleston and continued till November 12th. The judge being Nicholas Trott, Bonnet was found guilty and condemned to be hanged. Trott made a speech of overwhelming length to the condemned. Judge Trott made a speech of overwhelming length to the condemned, full of biblical quotations, to each of which the learned magistrate gave chapter and verse. In November 1718, the gallant, if unfortunate, major was hanged at White Point, Charleston. Apart from the unusual cause for his turning pirate, Bonnet is interesting as being almost the only case known, ever, otherwise than in books of romance, of a pirate making his prisoners walk the plank. Well, you legends, I hope you enjoyed all the accounts. The number of times people get away is ridiculous, the amount of times people get duped always makes me laugh, and the last guy that turned from the army to the piracy, and that's piracy with a Y. Huh, crazy. And to think they blamed it on his wife, even crazier. Mates, did you enjoy it? There's plenty more. Did you have fun listening to all these real accounts? I loved them, and I hope you did too. I want to thank my legendary Oaten IT Titan, Matto Star, thanks to you. I'm able to effectively keep not just the lights on, but also turn my podcast into a miniature solar system. Thanks to you, buddy. Countless of old-time radio episodes are being repaired and aired to everyone for free. Your donations go straight into improving quality audio and ensuring that love and care are taken when repairing such audio, whilst also ensuring that the audio remains public for everybody's ears. Thank you, Matto. You're helping the old-time radio scene, as it were, heal. Cheers, you legend. To my amazing Leza Bazooka Rex Studio, thank you so much for your support. This month, your support is feeding into more music, mainly, and getting access to more and more books that I can narrate with you lovelies. Your support also feeds directly into the website, sound filters, and so much more. You are a legend, mate, and I hope you know that you're helping this podcast grow as a result of your kindness. An honorary mention for Maya, the Queen of Cats. Thank you for your previous support on this channel, and may your cat's claws always be sharp. I also want to thank my amazing Elgrain forces, the people that put a pep in my step. We have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fasig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Thank you all, and for all my subscribers. I want to let you know that I'm running mid-journey artificial intelligence prompts for my subscribers. What does that mean, I hear you ask? It means you have direct access to me to send through what you would like made into artwork. These are really high quality 4K printable on canvas pieces of artwork that you can just send me with a word saying, stories, I want two cats high-fiving wearing a hat made of felt in a Renaissance art style. As simple as that, and I'll produce something absolutely amazing for you. 
and feel free to reach out to me at any time via email, which is stories, fables, ghostly tales at gmail.com or through Patreon. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail, but remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plot line. That's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet. And if we meet again, maybe I'll make you walk the plank. <laughs> Getcha. <laughs>